0: Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, we're going to get a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at organ transplants and what it's like to work as a lung transplant physician confronted with life and death
1: decisions every day. Our guest is transplant consultant Dr. David Weil, who is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplant Program at Stanford. He's also the author of a gripping new memoir entitled Exhale, hope healing and a life in transplant. Dr. thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: What prompted you to write the book Exhale and why did you name it that?
2: I came home from the hospital a lot of nights and had a had a great deal on my mind based on what I saw in the hospital every day and I actually kept a journal for around 20 years and would draw, jot down notes to myself about what I had seen and decided when it was time to step away from the front lines of doing this kind of care, that I would make it into a book. So these little notes became scenes and they ultimately became the whole book. And the title Exhale really came about because not only am I a lung transplant doctor and we obviously have to inhale and exhale, but I also write about in the book where I found for me personally, it was time to take A big exhale uh, because I've been on a roller coaster for more than 20 years.
0: When you were deciding what part of medicine to go into, you said that intellectually you knew that transplants were risky with a high potential for complications, but emotionally you refused to accept it. When did you first have a reality check and think to yourself, gosh, I wonder if I got into the right
2: part of medicine? Almost right away.
1: <laughs>
0: um,
2: yeah, almost right away. I, I realized very early on, and this is going back to when I was in my early thirties, that this was gonna affect me deeply. And I thought that it would actually get a little bit better over time, uh the longer I practiced, but in fact the opposite happened. I think it affected me even more deeply as my career went on. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that my father, who I was very close to, received a transplant and it became very personal. And then secondly, I think all of us change quite a bit when we have children of our own. And it's different when you're starting to care for other people's children and you realize that, hey, that could be my kid. And it became very difficult emotionally at that point.
1: As I mentioned, your your book is Absolutely gripping. I mean, it it really is. You've really done a wonderful job of pulling us in and 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 letting us get a sense as to what that life and death responsibility of being a transplant physician is all about. Can you share with us what a typical day is like for a transplant doctor?
2: Yeah, I um I had a fairly typical routine. I I get up very early in the morning, so I would typically be out of bed at four o'clock in the morning. And I, um, like to exercise as I mentioned in the book and would try to do that first, you know, straight away and then get to the hospital by six o'clock. And I, I would, you know, so much of what we do now is, is based on the computer. So I would kind of check the computer, look at all the masses of information I tried to process every day. And that would usually take in half an hour or 45 minutes. And then I would walk around the hospital with a large team of people. And we would go to see the patients, and that usually took till about 9 o'clock in the morning. Then we would leave the hospital setting, go to the clinic where we were seeing patients that have already had a transplant or might need a transplant, and that would happen till about noon, have a quick bite to eat, off to do procedures, uh, lasting till about 4 o'clock or so, and then I would go back and see the patients in the hospital. And usually try to get home at 6 or 7 so that I could have dinner with my family.
0: How did you give bad news to the patient and to their families that they were not going to receive an organ?
2: Well, sometimes well and sometimes not so well, as I write about in the book. I I think that um, the the more my career went on, the more I tended not to beat around the bush and just essentially rip the Band-Aid off, if you will, and tell the patients just right away what they want to know. You know, as doctors, we have our own doctor talk. And I tried to get away from that when I was having these kind of discussions because having sat there as a family member of a transplant recipient, I just need the facts, you know, just give it to me. Let's not beat around the bush. And so the conversations became more direct, especially when patients were actually faced with having making – their own decisions about their family members. Should we discontinue aggressive care? Should we take our family member off the waiting list because the transplant would be futile? I wanted to take that decision out of patients' families' hands because it was something that I could do for them. It was sort of a gift to them to unburden them with that responsibility, if you get what I mean.
1: What are the factors that go into determining whether a patient is a good candidate for a lung transplant?
2: You know, it's all built around our experience figuring out who is going to have the best chance of survival and who's not. So, the best candidates for a lung transplant or any transplant for that matter is if they only have that one organ affected by disease. In other words, they're pretty healthy except for that one organ. So, we feel like If we replace that one organ, we can quickly get patients back to a good state of health. They're healthy enough to get up, out of bed. They're nutritionally pretty sound, not too skinny, not overweight, and they can get back to a reasonable degree of health if that organ works after we transplant them. So we're looking for people that only have one affected organ.
0: What happens when a person's body doesn't accept that lung? Do they get to go back on the waiting list, or is it like one chance?
2: Well, some, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Sometimes there are, there is only one chance at it, and those are the cases that I write about in the book that, that were so difficult because we knew that the stars were only going to align once for that person, and we desperately wanted it to go right, and their families desperately wanted it to go right. But then there are other patients who we were able to get a second organ for and even a third organ, uh, the patients that would experience even three organ transplants in their life. But the best um, outcome is when there's a good start to the transplant and then we can actually take care of the patient and get them better. And again, they can survive many, many years and essentially do whatever they want at that point, whatever it is they want to do.
1: You would ask the prospective lung transplant patients what it is that they would like to achieve if they had a new set of lungs. What did they tell you? What kind of answers did they give you? And was there a right or a wrong answer?
2: There really wasn't, uh, in my mind, at least a right or a wrong answer. It was my way of getting the patients to tell me what their dream was. what, What was their aspiration? and it was a way for me to get to know them a little bit better but i heard i heard every single answer you can imagine you know some were as simple as i want to go hiking i want to play golf i want to chase grandkids i want to have sex with my wife um you name it um i i pretty much heard it uh, but i think the most important thing even if somebody said look i don't know what i want to do i just want to live that's an answer and that that's fine I try not to make much of a value judgment on what somebody did with their transplant afterwards,
0: unless they're just saying to you, "Hey, I want to go smoke," right? Yeah,
1: that that would be a bad answer.
2: <laughs> that was not a popular answer. We had that. We actually had that experience as well. Not—not not a popular answer. No. Oh
1: my gosh. This episode is sponsored by Ritual, and we want to tell you more about why we're big believers in all of Ritual's products. Let's focus on
0: Ritual's essential protein products for a moment. You know, we all need protein. Protein helps
1: support bone health and so much more. It's not just about muscles. But protein powders can be intimidating, to say the least. Plus, as we go through life, Our protein needs change, so it's important to choose a mix for different life stages. Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct
0: formulas designed to meet your body's changing protein needs during different life stages. There's
1: Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and Postpartum. And each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Ritual's Essential Protein is a good foundation for your health, and it's easy to incorporate into your daily rituals. It sure is. I just add water, shake, and sip. And I love the great taste. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla formula from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. I love it, too, because there's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non-GMO. You may have heard us talk about Rituals products over the years and why we really appreciate that with Rituals' one-of-a-kind, visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. You won't find fillers, colorants or shady additives. Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers,
0: free easy cancellation and a money back guarantee within the trial period. Are you
1: ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our Nobody Told Me listeners get 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com
0: ntm And remember, Ritual even offers a money back guarantee if you're not
1: 100% in love. Visit Ritual.com slash NTM today for 10% off your first three months. Again, that's Ritual.com
0: slash NTM for 10% off your first three months. Can adults receive transplants from children and vice versa?
2: That's a good question. And it's basically a size component. I mean, as you know, there's 15 year olds that are adult sizes, 12 year olds that are near adult size. It's really a size equation at this point. And there was, I don't know if you recall this case, in a young girl in Philadelphia about 10 years ago, I think, who was 11 years old. And at that time, you could only get pediatric lungs for a pediatric patient, regardless of size. But me and others got involved in changing that policy so that adult lungs could be used for the pediatric patients, assuming the size was a good fit.
1: What is it like to talk to the families of the prospective donors? I mean, that, that must be very, very difficult. And, yeah, and you're, you're doing it at a horrible time in their lives.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a tough conversation. I, I mean, you know, as you point out, this is their moment of the worst possible tragedy that's happened to them. And here I, me or somebody like me comes around and asks them, Hey, can we have all the organs? Um, It is difficult. I think it has to be done with great sensitivity, great caring. And I think that the important thing is first to ask, hey, has your loved one ever expressed an interest in being an organ donor? Is that something they've ever talked about? Or do you think that they would want to help out up to eight people by donating their organs? And a lot of times, which I'm sure you would suspect. It became a silver lining for a terrible dark cloud in these patients' lives. So they actually got some consolation from it, if you will, that they were able to help up to eight people go on to live a healthy life.
0: Do the families of the donors often stay in contact with the recipients and their families? Is that like a connection to their loved one?
2: Yeah, they they often do. And, you know, in my experience... It's been an incredibly meaningful conversation. Um, you know, you even have people listening to their loved one's heart that happens to exist in another person or listening to the lungs go up and down and breathe in another person. But more commonly, it's just the acknowledgement of the transplant recipient that, Hey, your loved one passed away. You and they made the most generous gift possible. And we really appreciate that. That's what, that's really all the donor families are looking for is that acknowledgement. So yeah, to answer your question, the relationships have often turned out to be meaningful.
1: What percentage of prospective donor families that you talk to typically will go along and, and agree with allowing their loved ones organs to be donated?
2: Yeah, if you take all comers in the United States, it's about a 50-50 proposition. So 50% of the people that we approach for organ donation will consent to organ donation. And it does vary by geography. It varies by socioeconomic class. It varies by race about the likelihood of someone agreeing to be an organ donor. But if you take Everyone in the whole U.S. it's about a fifty-fifty proposition.
0: And how much time do the families have to make
1: that decision?
2: Not long, you know. Usually, just a couple of hours at the most.
1: Wow. What would you like to see done to improve those rates?
2: I, I, I think there's a, there's a number of things, and I'll tell you what what's being talked about out there. One is paying organ donor families, essentially just. Paying the family for uh, for the donation, they can use that money for a funeral. They can use it for anything that they want. And there's some state legislatures that are considering that now. And we're talking around five thousand dollars. And we know that that's not enough, you know, for for a kidney or a liver or a lung. But it is a token, I I think, of the appreciation, you know, that that we have. The, The other idea out there that some European countries have already adopted is something called an opt out system so right now in America we have an opt-in system you actually have to actively say you want to be an organ donor if you're in order to become an organ donor right in Europe and other countries it's opt out in other words if you don't say we're going to assume you're you're an organ donor and not surprisingly that opt out system has increased the donation rates in many European countries and There's a discussion going around about the ethics of that, about the morality of that, and I certainly appreciate the delicacy of that issue, but that's another way to increase organ donation.
0: Are the families of children who have died more or less likely to agree that their loved one have their organs transplanted?
2: It doesn't seem to vary so much by age, but as I mentioned, it does vary by geography, socioeconomic class, and race. does not seem to vary so much by children versus adults.
1: What percentage of the patients that are listed on the waiting list for donor organs actually end up getting them?
2: It depends on which organ you're talking about. So in my world of lung and heart transplantation, It's about 75% getting patients from the waiting list to the transplant. In other words, 25% are either taken off the list because they're so sick or they die on the waiting list. In kidney and liver transplant, it's a little bit better than that. Somewhere around 10% don't make it to transplant. Heart and lung a little bit higher.
0: You talk a lot in the book about dealing with hospital administration, and I thought that was really interesting because that's not at all what I would have associated with your job. How was that for you, and did that play any part in you deciding you wanted to step back from the field?
2: You know, surprisingly, and I think that this would perhaps be unexpected from a doctor, I had a very good relationship with many of the hospital administrators. I, I truly think that they are trying to do the right thing. They are running a business though and you know we as physician leaders can never forget that they are running a business and they have business decisions to make but some of the better interactions that i had uh, were with hospital administrators who had the same goals i did and we could align ourselves and get a lot of good stuff done now that's not to say that that's uniformly the case either in my career or any physician's career but I ran into some hospital administrators that actually, I think, helps, helped our team save lives. So it was a very good relationship.
0: It must have been hard, though, if you wanted to have a certain surgeon hired or something and there wasn't enough in the budget. How, yeah. how did you deal with that in terms of salaries? Because you want the best people, but you know, they're running it like a business.
2: Yeah. Sometimes, you know, and I write about this in the book, sometimes it's about money and sometimes it's about ego and power. And, you know, at big institutions, Stanford included in that, there were decisions that sometimes were made with financial considerations, but often made with political ones. In other words, you know, we didn't always hire the most experienced surgeons because the most experienced surgeons already there might feel like they were going to intrude on their own business or their own practice. And there were, there were times when I felt like, The politics of it got in the way more than the money itself did. You know, these institutions, Stanford included, have a lot of money and they can afford the best talent. But a lot of times the roadblocks come from people that don't want to give up their own power in order to achieve a greater good. And that's the times that I found the most frustrating.
1: How does it benefit a hospital to have a transplant program. You talk about that in the book and I found that fascinating.
2: Yeah. I, I think that there's two general categories of how it benefits hospitals. I think one is the more obvious one. It's, it's a money maker in a hospital in America. There's only a few, three or four ways to make money. Uh, hospitals don't make a lot, a lot of money off of pediatric care or orthopedics or. OBGYN, giving birth to babies. Hospitals make money off of doing very advanced, sophisticated care like transplantation, like neurosurgery, like cancer therapy. And so transplantation is seen as one of those ways that a hospital can really enhance its bottom line. And so that's one attraction. But the other attraction is, and this is important, I think. I think patients who are consumers Figure if we can do stuff like organ transplantation, we can do the routine stuff as well. And so it almost enhances your reputation doing these very sexy, innovative things. Um, it's just good marketing, frankly.
0: I hadn't thought of it that way. You write on page 307 that you had come to the point where you had to leave not because of the job, but because of how you did your job. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, as I write about in the book and I tried to be as honest as possible, I was very much mission oriented. I, I went at it pretty hard. I drove myself pretty hard. I think it's fair to say the 55 people that I was in charge of leading, I drove them pretty hard too. And I thought and still think that some of that is necessary in order to achieve excellent outcomes. And I was very interested in making sure that our patients got the best care possible. However, as I write about in the book, that's not often great for the individual. And in me, I think I reached a point where it's, I think, common to call that burnout. I, I'm not sure that's the right term for it, but it's a its a depletion, I think, of empathy uh, on, on the one hand, because I did watch a lot of patients I was very close to and their families uh, watch those patients die, and that's hard over a 20-year period. And I think also you just get flat worn out emotionally and physically living on this roller coaster, you know, which for me was 24-7, 365.
1: Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that because you talk about throughout the day you're checking and you're rechecking the, the waiting list for donors. And, and the calls come in in the middle of the night saying that a set of lungs is available tragically due due to some kind of an accident. Tell us what those middle-of-the-night hours were like sometimes.
2: You know, exhilarating a lot of the time, especially early in my career. I mean, I I got very, very excited when it was time for us to do a transplant. I would pull my waiting list out of my pocket and knew that we were about to change somebody's life, and that was exhilarating. And and in fact, throughout most of my career, it, it was the high point of my job, for sure, also physically taxing. I mean I I very rarely slept through the night and I think my sleep patterns have changed permanently as a result and I think that that's difficult um physically to do that. I think that you know night after night we all need a t- time away and a break from you know the emotional ups and downs of doing this kind of work. And I, I'm i afraid I did not avail myself of that very well. It was one of the mistakes I think I made during the course of my career.
0: I don't know how you could, though, because once you would have handled the situation with one patient who was getting the transplant and the family of those who were giving the organ, you would have to be on to the next person. So I, I feel yeah. like that's very human. What strategies did you use that you think worked somewhat well? I know you couldn't ever be off, but for people who are listening who maybe have really busy schedules and workaholics and need to figure out how to relieve some stress.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've talked to as many medical groups since the book came out as I have also to attorneys and stock traders. And I actually talked to about 2000 airline pilots one day. You know, a lot of us have, have, have stressful jobs and we all have to think of coping mechanisms. The, the mechanisms that I use were largely around exercise. I mean, it just made me feel better. Um, I think that looking back, I probably should have had more tools in my toolbox, if you will, and not only included exercise, but closeness to my family engagement with my friends, spirituality, which I didn't have a lot of until later in my career. I, I think you have to use more than one thing. But I think the key to any of us who live this kind of life is connecting I think the moment we isolate ourselves in our own little world, which I'm afraid I did um, some of the time, the worse we feel. And I think we have to stay connected in order to stay emotionally healthy
1: from a consumer standpoint i'm wondering how difficult it is to get insurance companies to pay for lung transplants
2: you know the insurance companies have actually gotten pretty good at understanding what we were trying to do early in my career lung transplant was b- brand new and they wouldn't pay for it because they it was quote unquote experimental at least in their minds i think that the more time has gone on the more they've become educated that it works, that it changes people's lives, that it leads to healthy, productive lives of our patients. And they're more likely to pay for it. Now, they do give us trouble uh, at times over specific items that they're either going to pay for or not pay for. And sometimes we have to get on the phone and argue with them a little bit. But I consider that just part of my job to try to try to educate them, really, about what we were trying to do. And I usually found a receptive audience.
0: How has the pandemic impacted transplants? I was thinking about how so many people have passed away, and I'm sure they could not be giving lungs after having had COVID-19.
2: You know, it, it impacted it in a number of ways. Of course, in March and April and May even of 2020, the transplant activity in our country essentially ground to a halt. You know, the hospitals and the people that provided care, especially the care that transplant requires, they were off busy doing something else, which is trying to save the lives of the, you know, huge number of patients that they needed to see in the ICU. So the transplant activity pretty much came to a halt. Plus, the hospitals did not want somebody from another hospital to fly in the middle of the night and come into their hospital and work to procure the organs and bring them back to the home base. They didn't want anybody in their hospitals from outside for reasons that you probably can, you know, surmise. But then the activity increased and it's now back to, back to normal levels. I think what's interesting about the pandemic, one of the things that's interesting about the pandemic with regard to organ transplant is how many patients Having had severe COVID pneumonia are now going to require a lung transplant because they simply can't recover from it. I think that that's going to be kind of a a tail to this epidemic. There's going to be patients who have permanent damage to their lungs, and this may go on for some years that are going to eventually need a lung transplant.
1: David, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson. And I can just imagine from reading your book and, and hearing your story, you must have a thousand things that nobody told you because, you know, you you've been in this field from, from its very infancy, but if you had to to pick one or two things that nobody told you about working in, in the organ transplant field, what would they be?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. and, you know, we, a lot of us pick our field out, our career out when we're in our 20s, and I did as well. I mean, I decided to become a transplant doctor in my 20s, and you can't predict what's going to happen to you. You can't predict about what's going to happen to the field. You have very little visibility. So the thing that really nobody told me is one, how much I would change as a person and how much the emotional toll, not the physical toll of doing the work, how much the emotional toll would take on me. So nobody told me that part. The second thing that I think is is really important is no one ever told me, no medical mentor, no parent, no nobody, take care of yourself. Do the job, do it as well as you can, but take care of yourself. I never heard that once.
0: We really, really appreciate you being so honest about your journey. I mean, the the honesty you showed about how, hey, it was really tough and it was hard for you to see all of this happen. It actually really helped me because I've often thought that doctors seem kind of immune to that. So it means all the more coming from you, really. Yeah, yeah definitely. A, a major figure in the medical world. We were just in love with your book and wish you a tremendous amount of success.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it.
1: Is there a way that people can connect with you on social media or the Internet if they'd like to learn more about your work and and the book?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, David Weil, MD.com. Great place to see the op-eds that I write, the essays, the book. Related activities and what else I'm up to. And I'm on um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. I'm pretty easy to find out there.
1: Wow. Wow. And, and yeah. it, it really is a gripping memoir. And as I say, I couldn't put it down. I mean, I just started reading it. And I was like, no, I, I can't stop this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it, it's so well done. And it just is a world that the rest of the world really knows nothing about. So I thank you for introducing it to us.
2: Thanks for having me. And thanks for the kind comments about the book. I appreciate it.
1: Again, our thanks to Dr. David Weil, whose book is called Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.